My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Let's start a revolution, one where every body is worthy and no body is shameful. Let's be uppity love rebels who fight to take the guilty out of pleasure. Let's stand up and proudly declare that we deserve decadence, joy, and fun in our lives. How much do you all love these words? They grace the website of today's beautiful guest. She lives by the boldly, beautifully unapologetically. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I am thrilled to have Lauren Marie Fleming in the studio with me today. Lauren takes the guilty out of pleasure. I love that. An audacious storyteller, she wrote the book Body Love, 10 Steps to Profoundly Loving Your Body, hosts the Body Love podcast, and leads the hashtag Body Love Revolution, a a movement to banish shame and fill our lives with decadence, delight, and joy. From crowds of thousands to groups of six, Lauren facilitates life-changing conversations with her motivational speaking, intensive workshops, and intimate retreats. Through her work, Lauren has helped people all over the globe silence their inner critics, connect with their deeper truths, and feel comfortable and confident in their bodies. For six years, Lauren ran the acclaimed sex blog Query Bradshaw, but now you can find her writing programs and products at laurenmarieflemming.com. I am so excited to have you here. I've been admiring your work for so long, and we're so grateful. Thank you for your voice and for your message. Thank you for having me, and it's always fun to hear people like, read my bio, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's me. Like I'm kind of a badass. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you have so much to be proud of, and I know that that only really scrapes the surface. You're always busy doing some kind of amazing adventure, which luckily your latest one brought you in this area. Yeah, it was perfect. <laughs> so I'm stoked got about to, that. To do this and come in and have this conversation, I'm really excited. Awesome. And I know that, as is often the case, your beautiful empowerment and all this inspiring work you do had some challenging roots that early in life, you know, and I relate to that, struggling with disordered eating and pressure uh, to look a certain way. I wonder if you could take us back to your childhood. Uh, what was it like in the climate that you were in as far as your body? So I grew up in a conservative farming town that was 85% below the poverty rate, I think it is. And we were right on the Mexican border in Eastern California, just right on the border, east of San Diego, where most people think is already Arizona. that um, doesn't exist. So it was this really interesting micro world, uh, micro economy, micro culture. And what came out of that was was a lot of obesity and a ton of body shaming. And so everybody was overweight. And I always joke that I could make the New York Times bestseller list, but my town would be more proud of me if I just lost 10 pounds <laughs> kind of thing. Wow. It was very much growing up. And it's not as much now because I think there's a big revolution that's happening and hitting even places like my small hometown. But growing up, it definitely was you like losing weight was the biggest accomplishment you could make. And so I, you know, was put on diets at seven. Seven, I went to my first fat doctor. I went to fat camp. 
Um, my parents spent a lot of money on trying to get me thin for my my benefit. But meanwhile, it was you know diet pills and getting trying to like get thin quick. It was always quick. Lose. I lost 10 pounds before prom in a week and a half, and that was just praised for my good behavior. And um, it was always really interesting how much extreme measures for weight loss was praised as good behavior. Yeah. And um, I was not a good behavior, behaved, well-behaved. I was not a good behaved. I'm a writer. I was not a well-behaved um, person. I was a awkward fat dyke who was totally okay with being an awkward fat dyke in a town of like conservative Christians that really didn't want me to be that. Wow. And so I, I struggled a lot. And I had, I was accepted in a lot of ways as that's just the way Lauren's going to be. So there was something beautiful about that. My sister, who was closer to the status quo, had to fight harder to be seen and not be pulled into the status quo. So that was always really interesting to me, that dynamic of having a sister who was thin and, and traditionally beautiful and um, who was you know, smart and intelligent and funny. And she really wanted to be in drama and do all these things, but she was pushed towards cheerleading because she could, where I was allowed to be in drama because that's where you put the fat dyke. You put her in drama kind of thing. And so it was really interesting growing up. I I was able to see that my body image issue wasn't because of my body. It was because no matter where I was or what I looked like, I was going to get shamed for my body. My sister, who had the, quote, perfect body, still hated her body. And so that has really empowered me as I go forward to see that it doesn't actually matter what your body looks like, whether you like it or not. And it doesn't matter how what se your sexuality is, because you can be shamed for being a virgin. You can be shamed for being a slut. And it none of this stuff really matters. It mm -hmm. doesn't. Everybody is facing that same battle against society telling us no matter who we are or what we do, we're not enough. Yeah. Wow. Or we're too much. Either one. At the yep. same time, you're not enough and you're too much. Yeah, you're judged for either, mm -hmm. you know, and there's too much. It's almost like a sense of competition mm -hmm. if you are are close to that status quo. Or people will tell you that, you know, when I was modeling, people would say, it's going to be really hard for you to age because all of your self-worth must be in your appearance. And I'm like, you have no idea what's going on inside my head, first of all. And second of all, presuming that that's where I'd put my value. You know, mm -hmm. that's so interesting. It's so interesting that you were able to know that it had nothing to do with your body. You must be, a, as they say, an old soul, which is a huge good thing. Where did that come from, do you think? Yeah, I think that it I think that a lot of it came from I do feel like an old soul. I do feel like there was there was a visceral intelligence in me that told me that there was a world beyond this and I wonder how much living in a small town helped with that because there was always it was easier for me to like myself in my small town where I could be like that's just you guys. You guys are just stupid. I'm going to leave when I turn 18 and I'll show you. And then I go to like San Francisco and it's there still. And I go to Oregon and it's there still. And I lived in Italy in the Czech Republic. I moved all around the world and everyone I met was dealing with this media idea that that you're not good enough and you're too much, mm. um, and and that I, those ideas are in every culture I've been a part of, and I ran and ran and ran trying to find the place where they would finally accept me, and um, then I ran out of places to run to, and I kind of just had to accept myself, and that's where I kind of hit ground rock bottom, and that's where I just the work started doing when there was nowhere else to run. Was that that rock bottom, was it a certain event or was it just kind of a gradual running out of places? I think that there were, it's funny, I feel like I've hit rock bottom at like different stages of the bottom. 
Yeah, I get <laughs> like that. I'm going farther you think down you're the at the sea, bottom, and, and then like, you get worse. This is it. There's no <laughs> way it could get worse. Yeah. So I think I hit that a couple times. Um, the first time I really had body and sexual empowerment, I was living in Italy, and my friends were all taking this class. And to pass, like they had a whole year where they just drew the human figure. So they were constantly looking for bodies to draw. And I really wanted to sit in front of them naked and be turned into art. And I, it took me to the last day of school, of living a year in Italy, and I finally asked them if I could pose for them. And I did. And their class was done, but they like did it after class for me. And I got to do it, and it was great. It was amazing. And it was but... amazing. It was so amazing. Just like lay there and be art. And so so I loved it so much and I went and was empowered so much that I started doing that when I got back to San Francisco and I joined a guild and I actually was making money. And a painting of me sold for six grand, a painting wow. of a fat, awkward dyke from a country town, like mm. a hick who I never thought that I would be that person, sold for six grand at auction once. And I was there and I got to see it. Beautiful. And um, I'm not traditionally what you would think of as sold for six grand, but it was really interesting because... I was in high demand because almost everybody who thought that they would be the person to be naked were ballerinas or really thin people, what the media was liking. But that's not what artists want to draw. And as a curvy woman, especially a curvy young woman, they really wanted to draw my curves. Mm -hmm. And so it was really empowering for me to see that. And then I started dancing burlesque. And burlesque, it doesn't matter what you look like. It matters the show you put on. It matters the way you connect with the audience. You connect with the audience, everyone wants to see you naked. If they don't care about you, they don't want to see you naked. And so that was really empowering too. And I just started taking these steps. And it's funny, I... It was like, with the exception of, you know, going down the rabbit hole of drugs, I kind of asked myself, would my dad approve of this? No, I'm doing it. Uh, <laughs> would the people in my hometown be like, we did what? Yes, I'm Ever the it. rebel. Yeah. And it was a way to, it started as a rebellion, but it was, it was a very valid process to try to get there. So it started with rebellion and um, what it feels like to hit rock bottom when you like loot, have your first love break your heart kind of thing, you know? And then it really got bad about three years ago when my brother died. And um, <laughs> it's like my brother had his jaw removed to stop his cancer. And I became his caretaker. And it's really difficult to have someone have their jaw removed in front of you and possibly not ever eat again and then give a shit about calories anymore or care about fat rolls. I don't care if anybody doesn't like the rolls in my back. I hated them for so long and I was so afraid of anyone seeing I have fat rolls in my back. And then my brother died and it's like, why am I caring about fat rolls in my back? My brother died of cancer and his jaw removed. Why would I want to get liposuction? And, and nothing against people. I think it's like, I actually think that for some people having changing their body to how they see themselves is actually a really valid, empowering thing. Um, but I had spent my whole life waiting for permission to love myself. I had loved my body. And I had been waiting for someone to say it was okay for me to love my body. Mm. And then I was in a relationship after my brother died. We got together right after my brother died. So it was really fresh and new with all, the, all of that. And for the first time, I found myself really afraid that she hated my body. She was tall and athletic. She hadn't really hung out with fat people before. She had been an athlete. And um, and I found myself in a place that I didn't think I'd be in again after dancing burlesque. And my grief had me hating myself. And in a weird way that grief presents itself in ways that no one tells you. Yeah. Like, 
in ways that nobody, whether it's grief from a death or heartbreak, raise no one really explains and they can't because for every person it's different. And for me, it became demons that attacked myself. Like I was not good enough for the first time. Mm. And I found that it was compulsive and it was this thing that I couldn't stop. I talked to my therapist about that and she said, well, the definition of compulsion, the definition of addiction is something that you want to stop and you can't. And so I realized that I was addicted to hating myself. Wow. I've never heard of it put that way, but I think that's what so many people fall into. Mm -hmm. Wow. That is fascinating. And I'm so glad that you brought up grief because I heard you speak about it at the uh, Explore More Summit a bit. And I had a variety of questions from listeners over the past couple of weeks. And one woman wrote in with a question that I immediately thought of what you had talked about in that interview. And I shared it with Dr. Megan. She's going to share her insight. And then I'd love to hear what, what you think of it. But here's what she wrote to us. I used to have a really hearty sex drive, even more than my male partners, ex- including my ex-husband. He left me very suddenly two years ago. And Though I'm learning to move on in my life in most ways, sex hasn't appealed to me since. I feel an added sense of loss, not even wanting to masturbate. I used to find it so therapeutic. I've tried watching sexy movies that used to turn me on and usually just feel sad. I feel unfeminine and disconnected. How do I get my sex drive back? This is from Christine. And first of all, I have so many thoughts on this, and I'm sure you do too. I wanted to hear what Dr. Megan had to say to Christine, and then maybe we could explore that a little bit more. Okay. Christine, I guess the first question I have um, in responding to your your question is, and what would it mean to get your sex drive back? Because you're no stranger to having um, had a hearty sex drive, enjoying your sexuality with partners and your ex-husband. And I'm wondering if there's something about when you say your husband, ex-husband, suddenly left you two years ago that, again, I can imagine that's a moment in time where sort of the... uh, clock stood still and it felt like a rug was being pulled out from under you. And I have no idea what had been going on in your relationship at the time, um, what at, toward the end of the relationship your sex life had been like. Um, but I definitely think that it's been a process for you in these two years of healing, moving forward, and the role of um, potentially trusting, uh, trusting another man. And that if you had your sex drive uh, back and you really felt feminine and Um, you know, does some part of that feel sort of scary? Um, And, you know, often when we've sort of uh, had that kind of rejection, abandonment, um, and we just feel so dropped emotionally, it's like we put up these walls as ways of taking care of ourselves. And I'd wonder, perhaps for you, if one of those walls has been sort of turning yourself off sexually. And I really want to highlight that um, again, in your in an embodied way, there's no sort of urge or wanting, um, as you said, to even masturbate. But there's also another part of you that's asking this question. And so maybe after these two years, you're starting to get sort of the seeds and inkling of like, and what would it mean if I brought that back? And, and the most important thing I would want to say to you is separating your readiness to feel pleasure in your body, to feel turned on, um, and to potentially have an orgasm that is completely separate from when you imagine that you might be ready to have that kind of an experience with a partner. What I'm really welcoming you to think about is, you know, putting a toe in the water and seeing, um, you know, it sounds like it's going to be through sort of your own fantasy or even just 
touching, caressing, appreciating your body, uh, you know, feeling touch that's pleasurable, you know, is it light, is it hard, um, you know, is it, do you involve clitoral stimulation, do you caress your breasts? Um, because you mentioned that, you know, movies, when you see something um, around romantic, that that actually has left you feeling sad. And so again, I think so much of your sexuality is uh, tangled up in sort of this loss. And what I'd encourage you to do is try to really separate that out and recognize feeling pleasure in your body is exclusively for you. And what are the images that sort of open you up or help you feel relaxed or saucy or sexy because um, that's what I'd have you think about your that the mind and arousal is both physical and psychological so getting into a headspace where you really feel your want your own personal want to bring this invite this back into your life um, and what are those thoughts and images that you know they just sort of warm up your engine a little bit and then kind of combining those thoughts and that openness uh, and that relaxation with light, gentle touch, or again, maybe you like it hard, but finding out what really does speak to you um, in alignment with both your mind and your body. And um, I'd also welcome you, if you're interested, to potentially check out my uh, program, Rekindle Desire and Get Your Sexy Back. Um, but that program doesn't really address some of these deeper issues that might be related to sort of resolving and letting go of uh, your your previous relationship and uh, saying goodbye to your to your marriage. So I hope that helps. And again, the fact that you even asked the question to me means there's a part of you that is, you know, ready for this next step. And so I want you to take it and just know that you're taking it completely on behalf of yourself. And when you're ready, whenever that might be, then maybe you can let someone else in on it too. I would love to hear how it goes. Keep us posted. Thank you, Dr. Megan. I loved that. And I hope it helped you out, Christine. It really, your question really brought to my mind shame around our sex drive as well. And one experience, not to compare our situations, but I remember when my dog died that I noticed I, I was too sad to feel anything connected to my sexuality. It's like I couldn't allow myself that pleasure for a while. And as soon as I noticed that, and this is because of the work that I do, I don't think I would have gotten to it otherwise, um, but I realized that I was shaming myself for not desiring sex at the time. And I gave myself permission to feel whatever I felt and just to be aware. And uh, I can totally understand why you'd feel frustrated. And I loved what Dr. Megan said about really making it about pleasure for yourself. I think that's really, really powerful and not thinking about it as far as, you know, your sex drive versus a guy's sex drive or your sex drive versus anybody's sex drive. I think it ebbs and flows for all of us, but it's also really important to investigate, which is exactly what you're doing. I just commend you so much. Lauren, I would love to hear your take on this situation and maybe a bit about your experience and whether that grief you were going through after you lost your brother, and I'm sure still, has that affected your own sexuality? Yeah, it's so interesting because um, the partner that I had after my brother died, we met, actually how we met was she had been reading my blog, Corey Bradshaw, which is a sex blog, and she saw that I had posted that my brother died, and so she contacted me. 
and said, I just want you to know a complete stranger is mourning your brother. And it was it was written really well, and I could tell she knew grief. And she had. Her dad had died. And um, and then the next time she contacted me, like, a month later to see, like, how are you doing, I was actually um, the night that I was staying up with my grandpa as he died. And I actually watched my grandma, my brother, and my grandpa die in a year's time. So And then about three months after that, one of my best friends killed himself. And um, it was just a lot of a lot of life, <laughs> for lack of anything yeah. else. It was just a lot of recognition. And um, when my brother got diagnosed with cancer, I was being Query Bradshaw. And I say being Query Bradshaw because Query Bradshaw was one of the reasons I dropped it. It was always a persona. And it was always this thing that I was trying to be. And um, that was George Clooney. <laughs> I was trying to be George <laughs> Clooney. And I had decided that if I could get to the point where I was, like, sleeping around and wooing women like he did, but then, like, everyone knew I was never going to get attached and then I was going to get the villain in, like, Lake Como. And it was all going to be great. And um, I ended up a little bit more like Tucker Max, like that asshole who was like, <laughs> no, I'm not going to be attached to you. And and it wasn't who I was. And I was really not who I was. And... Um, then grief hit. My brother, my brother got his cancer and then he died. And then I went to go back to that default that before my heart had been broken, before life had changed. And I wasn't that person anymore. And I kept trying to be that person. I kept trying to be like you, Christine, who was like, I really want this back. And I kept trying and trying and trying. And that actually destroyed me in a lot of ways mm. um, because when something tragic happens to you, the studies actually show there, there's people that study this. It actually changes your DNA. It attaches enzymes to you, the stress enzymes, and it really changes you. So it's not just like I'm emotionally changed. I'm physically at my core viscerally changed. And it sounds like that's what happened here. And yes, you may get your sex drive back, but you're probably never going to get the drive you had before back because you went through a trauma. And by recognizing that you're going through a trauma, Christine, I'm talking to you specifically, but everybody else out there, by recognizing you're going through transition, you can allow yourself to transition. You can allow yourself to take off any idea of being the person you were and see this as a blessing to see who you really were. Maybe the sex you were having you didn't like. And I was having a lot of sex as Quay Braja. I was contractually obligated to have a different person I slept with every m month, and that was awesome um, for me at the time. But that was never really me. And so when I, when I went back to try to be that, trauma actually made me more me. And so maybe you're finding out who you are, you. And maybe what you need to do is take some time to just let it be okay that you're not the old you. Yeah. And then you'll become the new you. Then you'll then your sex life may is. come back or it yeah. may not. But but accepting that and I understand because after my brother died, I just really wanted to have a lot of sex and not being able to have that again was actually a grief in and of itself. Um, and then I had heartbreak and I, I have to send love to anybody who's dealing with heartbreak right now because when my brother died, there was nothing I could do about it. We did everything we could. We tried to save his life. There was nothing I could do about it. But when a year and a half later, my partner left me, I was like, how can I change who I am to get this back? Because it's the only thing in my life, the only loss in my life right now that I can actually do something about. And so that heartbreak actually required me to do a lot more soul searching than my grief did over my brother's death. Because when somebody leaves us, especially quickly and unexpectedly, which my partner did, um, 
<laughs> you're lost. You build a world that includes them as a support beam. And when that support beam's taken out, you don't know what to do. And it's okay for you to not know what to do, Christine. It's okay for you to be at a point where you don't know if you want sex. You don't know how to have sex. You don't know how to get yourself off. And just sitting in that, um, as hard as it is and as frustrating as it is and as horny as you get and sexually frustrated you can get, um, that will be when your sex drive comes back. It won't be when you're trying. Yeah. It will be when you stop beautiful. trying. There's freedom there, isn't mm-hmm. there? In radical self-acceptance and just saying, this is where I am. Mm-hmm. It may not be, as you said, who I used to be or who I want to be, but just work with you, mm-hmm. you know, and reconnecting. I think that's so important. And didn't that experience also lead into body love? Yeah. So I was I was with this partner and um, I had created these 10 steps because in our relationship, honestly, our relationship suffered because I was in such a bad place. I kept beating myself up and I was just like constantly hating my body. So I created body love because I needed that 10. I, it was compulsive. My body hate was compulsive and I wanted an AA. I jokingly told my partner as I was like crying in her lap because we'd had another fight because I couldn't believe that she would actually want to have sex with me. Um, and we had a fight and I was like, oh, I just need like I, I need an intervention. I just need AA for hating your body. And I actually looked for it. I looked so much and there was Overeaters Anonymous and there were these other things, but I really just needed it for loving your body. And so I created it. And that's where my 10 step program came from I was um, I never thought I'd be a self-help person. I'd always been a novelist and a memoirist. And all of a sudden I was writing a self-help and, and embodying the idea that I have something that could help others was actually a process in and of itself. But um, what I found about body love is I didn't write it for others. I wrote it for myself. And I wrote it as a big, like, flipping people off and a big, like, here is my giant 173-page permission slip to never talk bad about my body again because now I wrote the book on loving your body. And that doesn't mean I don't have to struggle because the book talks a lot about, like, every day it's a journey, not a destination. It's not like crossing a finish line. But I don't have an excuse not to keep traveling down that journey anymore. Beautiful. I love that you've taken that not only to help yourself, but that you're helping so many other people with it. And I love that you mentioned that it's not this destination we get to like, I love my body land. And oh, then I we want a magic there. wand. I want the finish <laughs> yeah. line. I want to like yeah. have a magic wand and just have everybody love their bodies again. Yeah. And that would be so great, wouldn't it? It would be. It would yeah. be. And at the same time, we do get a lot from the work that we do, mm-hmm. I know, because and we were just talking about this earlier today, how much that kind of work can also help us work in other areas of our lives without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned this, the struggles, which can be daily, which can crop up anytime. Could you give us an example of a struggle and how you work through it? So I start the book. So the Body Love 10 Steps each come with a sentiment because I think that one of the things that I personally needed and I know a lot of people needed is we aren't used to dealing with kind of these oh, more ambiguous emotions. So there's a sentiment to each step. And the first step is the sentiment is abundance. And I start the book by talking about how the ways in which dieting tells you you can't have more and you don't deserve it. And so what you do then, and then when you are good, you can treat yourself. So it's that like binge and purge or starve and treat. Um, And how that actually can affect the ways in which you react with the rest of the world. So the example I give is I used to be that person who would 
not eat all week and be really proud of myself. So I'd try to eat just a little bit of ice cream and then I'd end up eating the whole giant gallon. Or I'd be the person who would be saving up for something and be so proud of myself that I'd then go splurge. And I found that this the ways in which I dieted and had been told dieting was the healthy way to eat paralleled money so much and energy and time and space, all these other things. I am not worthy of, of like doing the things I want to do, eating the things I want to eat, having the things I want to have, loving the way I want to love, having the sex I want to have. So there, there's underlying I'm not worthy. And when you took dieting and the ways in which like the traditional diet idea of starving yourself and burning these calories to get to this goal, this ambiguous goal that's never going to be small enough. Um, when you took that out of your life, I stopped. I started budgeting better. I started managing my calendar better. I started saying no to something unless it was a major, unless my whole body says yes, I say no. And that's how I am with everything in my life now. And so it makes it so I can, I can, I'm not on these roller coasters anymore. And those roller coasters were started by dieting. And I got off that roller coaster by getting off the dieting roller coaster and um, eating whatever my body felt like eating. And then I found that I wasn't eating the pint of ice cream because my body doesn't feel like that because I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Isn't so literally I couldn't eat that. And yeah. yet I was still doing it. Why? Because I was told I couldn't. And that yes. was the only reason I was eating it. Wow. That's really powerful. And I love that you brought money up into this because it seems to me that that's sort of a area that's missing from these conversations. And I know that for me, it was one of the last you know, we're always growing, but it was one of the last challenging areas related to my eating disorder. I hadn't even realized that how I felt about food also equated to how I felt about money. You know, that's that's pretty incredible. And I know a lot of people struggle with that. A lot of women struggle with that. People of all genders struggle with that. When it comes to changing those attitudes about money, what helps you? So... I have two examples, and and this is my favorite, and I love that I'm telling you this because you went to Paris. Um, I think that we have these romanticized ideas of where we want to go and where we're going to find happiness. So I use Paris because it's it's a, it's probably the most romanticized city in the world. And um, so somebody wants to go to Paris, and they don't feel worthy of a trip to Paris. So what they do is they spend all their time, money, and energy on other stuff that probably costs them more time, money, and energy than going to Paris. But they're, it's almost like they don't, they, they're guilting themselves. It's like self-flagellation. Um, and so they don't go to Paris. So they'll go to Vegas and spend it all because Vegas seems close if they, you know, we're in Southern California right now. So people go to Vegas. Um, or they go to the mall. Or they go do this thing instead of going to Paris. So you have that end of it, and then you also have the end of people go to Paris, and what they really want is a croissant at a sidewalk cafe in the house near them for an hour without their kids, or you know, a, like a being on the couch watching French Kiss. That's what they really want. So you have both extremes. You don't go to Paris, or you go to Paris when Paris isn't really what you want. And so what I spend a lot of time asking myself, what's the feeling I want out of this purchase, out of this meal, out of this day, out of this life? And when I know how I want to feel, and there's a woman named Danielle Laporte who has a whole desire map that's based on this idea. I love her. Um, She's great. And the desire map is great. And this idea that you set up your goals based on how you want to feel. And um, I had been doing something similar to that before I read her. And and that just reinforced the idea of what do I want to feel 
the end of my life. And I watched my brother die. He bled out and died in my mom's arms while I was calling for help. And it was horrible. And I had a full disassociation out-of-body experience. And I had hours of conversations with myself in split seconds. And it was one of those things that you see on TV and you think, like, that's not real. But it, like, I felt like I was floating in the cosmos. I, w- I wrote the whole story of my brother's memoir and the time it took him to bleed out, which was about a minute and a half. And it was, in, it was really intense. And the stories that I learned, I felt like I was floating. And I, and I put myself in, if you can, I encourage you guys to close your eyes and think about this too. Like, you're floating in the universe. And the things that matter are the stars. And the things that don't are the black between it. And you don't have to actually actively cut ties with that blackness. What you need to do is just head towards the stars. And so whenever I'm lost, whenever I'm deciding if this is the right thing for me to do, I sit and I ask myself, is this a star or is this the blackness? And the and cutting ties with things is really hard. So you, sometimes if you don't want to let something go, you'll feed it energy. Or if you're trying to let it go, you'll feed it energy. And instead of focusing on the negative, on that scarcity mentality, what you don't have, I really focus on the light and what I do have and what I want and where I'm headed. And that has helped me a lot, being able to see, to let the things just fade away. They don't have to be drama. You don't have to declare that your relationship is over. You don't have to declare. I mean, I guess if you're in a formal relationship, you do. But like friendships, I just let them fade into the black. I let money fade into the black. I let things I didn't need anymore fade into the black. Beautiful. And I love the analogy with the stars, too, because we need the blackness to see the the stars, you know, and knowing that when we focus on the good, but that we also learn from, you know, the hard parts and, and, uh, you know, what, whatever we focus on really does grow. And I'm also reminded of what Tony Robbins talks a lot about, which is, you know, everything's motivated by love or fear. So knowing what you don't want to be, but then focusing on what you love, you know, going toward that love is so, so important. What are you most passionate about in your own life right now? I am... I just had this really big, so I spent the past year really building up my business and I had all these events and all these retreats and then I realized that my fans, a lot of them are in that scarcity mentality so they won't spend money on themselves and they also don't have it. So I packed everything up and I'm on this road trip to go and meet people where they're at and I keep saying, we're going to take a lot of slow walks up short mountains. Um, and my idea is to get pe- to go to places like beaches and hikes and malls and just have supportive, loving conversations with people and take them shopping when they've never had a body positive shopping experience before. Have them wear a bikini on the beach. Go uh, take short... Uh, ooh, take... I can't do right now. Cake. Short, short walk. walks up a mountain. Slow walks up short mountains. Oh, there, there we, we go. go. <laughs> short walks, slow walks up short mountains and do all these things that fat people and people who are out of shape or people who are dealing with chronic illness. One of the hardest things for me hiking is not my weight. It's my gastrointestinal issues from having like food issues and food intolerances and taking them to places and saying like, you know what, if you need to go slow, that's going to be okay. If you're uncomfortable, that's going to be okay. And doing these meeting people where they're at, literally. Mm. (laughs) Um, I'm really excited about that right now. And I'm taking my dog with me. Oh, your dog is beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. He has an Instagram account. He's kind of Instagram famous. What's his Instagram? At Albus Weasley Podcast. 
Potter. <laughs> and um, and yeah, so I'm doing that. And um, I it's hashtag body love on the road if you want to see where I am. And, and that's B-A-W-D-Y. B-A-W-D-Y, yeah. And uh, that's really exciting to me. And then I'm working on my next follow-up to body love, which is called um, Lovable. And it's talking about the logistics of being in love. There's this Mexican saying that I love. And it's sin dinero, amor vaya por la ventana. And it means without money, love goes out the window. And I love the idea of if you we think of love as this thing that that is um, universal, but if it doesn't have the practical behind it, you can't back up love. So it helps people understand what they actually need from their relationships. And and you would think that it's like, oh, I'm going to break up because I'm not getting. But you'd be surprised at how many people are actually getting their needs met in a relationship. But they think that their relationship should look like something else so they don't feel that they're getting their needs met. And so this is a book all about how to f- how to really recognize what your needs are and if you're getting them met. And if you're not, how to get them met. And if you are, how to appreciate that you're getting them met. Beautiful. I love that whole concept. That I'm is really excited about so it. So juicy. Yeah. That is really amazing. And I think you're absolutely right that people don't realize what they have. And so much of that has to do with how they feel about themselves, right? It's it's kind of uh, when I was struggling with my body image issues and depression and whatnot, I kept thinking I had to like move to another city to be happy. Like I'm chasing it outside of myself. Mm-hmm. There's no way I could be happy anywhere, especially in Paris. I thought I'm going to go there and it's going to be this magical fairy dust floating around me and I'm going to see those people kissing on benches. I might be one of those people kissing on benches. I'm going to eat a croissant and not feel guilty and you know feel great about my body and be working all the time. and. It doesn't happen when you're not at peace with yourself, you know? Yeah. Is that something that you have found in your own life? Has that manifestation of this abundance, emotional and, and in all ways, has it affected your relationships with others? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So my sister and I, we were always, like, friends, but we weren't close. And when my brother died, we we had you kind of have two options when somebody dies. You can either completely ignore it and be destroyed, or you can only talk about it. And we chose to only talk about it. And what we what that ended up doing is it forced us to talk about everything else too. So so by learning to get my needs met, I start I stopped hating people that got their needs met, and I stopped giving people permission to make excuses to not have their needs met. And that was a really empowering thing for me and the people around me. So not hating people for having their needs met. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah. I hated people who had, like, love. I hated people who were happy. I was bitter and angry that not everybody was mourning my brother. I couldn't believe when I woke up the next day that everybody else got to live their life and be happy and have their families. I hated everybody for what they had. And I didn't realize until I got to that point where it was very obvious that I hated everybody for an obvious reason how much I actually hated people my whole life. I was jealous of the money they had. I was jealous of the things they had. I was jealous of the love they had. I was jealous of the body they had. I was jealous of the sex they were having. You know, and all these things were like they were probably very much in debt and they hated their body and and they weren't actually having any sex. But it was the idea that everybody else is happier and wealthier and better than me or worse than that, they were like less than me. You were either better than me or you were less than me. There was no equality. And so by by seeing... When I stopped doing what other people expected of me and started just doing things, I don't do something unless it brings me joy, unless it brings me pleasure. I think pleasure is the purpose of life. If it does not bring me pleasure, I don't do it. Mm-hmm. And that's funny because the minute I started doing that, I kicked ass in my business. 
I started moving my body more. I started eating healthier. I started loving people I wanted to love, having relationships I wanted to have. The minute I said, I won't do anything unless it brings me pleasure, I got more work done than I'd ever gotten done. I was never on Facebook anymore. I was. I wrote a book in like three months, an amazing book in three months. I worked my ass off because I wasn't going to do anything unless it brought me pleasure. And what brought me pleasure was that. I love that. That is absolutely, I think, one of my core principles now is is that pleasure is the driving force of everything good and mm-hmm. and changing the world, changing our own lives, changing, you know, politics, everything. Just bettering humanity comes from that place. I was struck by you mentioned Facebook. Was that a place that you would go, and it was kind of that comparison syndrome, or was that? Was part of the negativity? No, I didn't have comparison syndrome problems with Facebook, although I know a lot of people do. Um, Facebook was an addiction for me for a really long time. I'm on Facebook now, um, but I was the I was addicted to the endless excuse to not do the work that ah, Facebook gave me. Gotcha. So if I was in a tough chapter. And I didn't want to have to deal with the fact that I needed to write about the fact that I went off on my ex-partner and was super abusive to her because I hated my body. And she was walking up this hill faster than I was. And I went off on her for it. Um, and I didn't want to face that. So I Facebooked. <laughs> <laughs> Don't face your problems. Facebook. And it was literally just I'd be sitting there scrolling and my thumb would be hurting and tired. Oh. And it'd be an hour later and I'd just be reading bullshit that I didn't care about in someone's life about their cousin's ex's boyfriend's baby's roommate (laughs) you know but I was addicted to the procrastination that Facebook gave me from doing the things I wanted to do in my life were you enjoying that not at all oh my god I hated it I hated it I enjoy Facebook now because I have I have a really great body positive supportive Facebook group for body love that anyone can join if you want to and um, I love to get on there and and um, be with them, but I actually had to install an uh, um, extension that keeps me from the feed or else I'll just scroll through it. I won't even read it. I'll just scroll through it. Like the act of scrolling is a procrastination technique. Interesting. And yeah. What you post is always inspiring and, and fun. It seems very authentic, too. You know, yeah. you get a sense of this is really who you are because we met in person for the first time today. Yeah. And I was like, hey, here's Lauren. I totally know you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really I had gone from Curry Bradshaw that was very a very um, polished version of someone else's brand that I was embodying <laughs> to I'm just like, there is really no way to be anything but myself. So my social media is very, very much it's polished in that I think before I post, but it's um, and I like to write. I'm a writer, so I'm a horrible photographer, but I love to write. So I, I take some time when I write a post. But um, it's me. It has to be 100% me. There can't be any falsity. The minute I'm trying to impress people with a post, I take it down. I just don't put it up. Because when I start to try to impress people, that's when I know I'm not in a good place. I love that. That's a great rule to live by. It really is. Wow. How do people think of you now? Y- you mentioned kind of the culture that you grew up in, it was glamorized to diet and all this stuff. Has that, you said it's changed a little bit. Do you still get some turbulence and some naysayers or are people kind of coming around? I think that it's interesting. I They're coming around. It depends on the part of my life. I'm a queer person who dates genderqueer people and yet some of the people in my hometown are still able to use gender neutral pronouns. And um I have every time I go home, I have somebody come up to me and be like, your postings helped me wear a bathing suit. They helped me feel better about my body. They helped me have better sex. They helped me hate myself less. And that feels amazing. And I think that there's times in this world where 
what I do is not a million dollar industry. And there's times where it's really devalued because it's not something that's often put monetary value on. Um, but ev- And so sometimes I get into that mentality and I get worried, okay, it, should I have a law degree? Shouldn't I be making a bunch as a lawyer? Why should I be writing and continuing to do this? And then I go home and some person who had been my neighbor for years comes up to me and is like, you saved me kind of thing. I'm like, okay, okay, this is all worth everything. Affirmations. It is worth it all. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you hear from those people. That's so important that you're on the right track. And it's normal to have those fears too. They kind of remind us too of the journey and how grateful we are now. Because I remember being crippled in fear mm-hmm. in the past. You know, to be beyond living in that state is is huge and so commendable. I love that. Yeah, I want to be very clear. Fear didn't go away. Mm-hmm. Fear is very much there. I actually stopped ignoring my fear and trying to make it go away. And that made me, I said my fear on on the way to this thing. I was like, I'm afraid I'm going to sound like an idiot. And I said all those fears out loud. And by saying them out loud, I, I'm not as scared anymore. I'm going to try that. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I um, I actually had a new date with somebody last night. And I like on the way to the date, I had to say all my fears. And when they left, I had to say all my fears. Um, and I like one of them was like, I'm afraid of not letting myself get excited. I'm afraid of letting my fears take over. Um, so Elizabeth Gilbert has a really great analogy if anyone's read Big Magic. And she talks about fears in the car no matter what. And by ignoring them, they're going to be like that little child who acts up and throws toys at you and puts their hand over your eyes while you're trying to drive. Um, but if you just say, hey, fear, what do you need? And they're like, I just kind of want to stop for a milkshake. You're like, OK, we'll stop for a milkshake, fear. And you 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 think of them. You don't let them drive the car. You don't let them choose the radio station. And they don't even get shotgun. But you acknowledge their presence in your life. And they're a part of this team that's going forward in your journey with you. So saying it out loud, I can imagine some people might say, well, isn't that giving that power? Like, how does that does that help you release it? Or then do you just respond to it? Does that help you kind of let it go? Well, so I'm not I know a lot of people believe in negative manifestation. I don't believe in negative manifestation. Um, I actually am very much about getting those fears and that energy out. So I'm not someone who believes that when you say your fears, you're making them happen in your life. Um, I think that by saying them I have the kind of brain where if it's in there, it digs a hole. Festers. But if I get it out, I write every single morning three journal pages. And it's everything. Is it morning pages? Yeah. I do morning I love pages Julia Cameron. Yeah. 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 I do She's my morning amazing. pages. And um, I found that they were the best therapy I've had yet. Um, and a lot of my morning pages are just my fears. They're my fears and my hopes. And I give them a place to be. And then if they come off that page, then that's them. And that's real. And that's something I need to work on. But if they stay in that page, then they just stay there. And like they stay in my car. They don't leave me. When I say, I'm afraid of sounding like an idiot on this radio station, that stays in my car. And it kind of just like goes out the window when I open the door. I love that. It's facing it head on mm-hmm. and not trying to, like you said, let it dig this festering hole Mm -hmm. in your mind because then they grow. Yeah. And it's funny I brought up that date because on that date I was talking the person that I went on a date with is an adrenaline junkie and is like no fear, kind of like loves the adrenaline. And I'm the opposite. I have everything that's fear. I have been, since I was a little kid, I've been so afraid of everything. And people think that's interesting because I've done so much in my life that's not like the no fear attitude. And that's what it is. It's I... I look at fear and I'm like, this is something I'm really scared of. It's probably something I should make myself work through. Um, from love to learning to surf to living in multiple countries to everything I've done, to writing a book, to everything. 
if it's something that I'm finding myself viscerally afraid of, it's probably something I need to work through. Mm. And so I actually face my fear like that as a friend, not head on, not a competitive, just being like, hey, why are we scared of this? What's work the worst it. that could happen? And sometimes, yeah, no, I don't want to go back on the Ukrainian train system where I had a gun pulled on me. That's that's a good fear to let have me stop me from doing that again but it's not going to ever keep me from traveling like it wanted to for a long time yeah yeah apparently the guy was flirting with us that's (laughs) flirting yeah so he pulled a gun we were coming from odessa back to um kharkiv and and he pulled a gun out to like show us that he was a macho like gangster guy because odessa is known for its gangsters and he pulls a gun out on us (gasps) and my best friend and i at the time and um and we were like what do we do he's sleeping with us for the next 15 hours in this cart (laughs) so um luckily she was in the peace corps and she called the person you call and he called the person they call and they the pretty much the equivalent of secretary of state called the train captain and told him we were diplomats and they put us in security (laughs) but i don't know what i would have done (laughs) if we were just there on our own with this guy who pulled it cocked it and shot it at us and then he was like haha no bullets and then he put bullets in and we're like we're gonna die right now wow yeah that's not where you want to go back to emotionally is yeah, it? yeah 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 <laughs> I don't I don't I avoid blood because my brother bled out and died in front of me and that's a fear that I'm not quite ready to overcome so there's a lot of times where you can't go there but understanding why I'm afraid makes all the difference in the world I love that beautiful message. So tell us where we can learn all about you and your wonderfulness. Yeah, um, everything's at laurenmarieflemming.com. I encourage people who are on Facebook um, to go to the Body Love Facebook group. Just hashtag Body Love. If you search that, you can find the group. Um, I'm on all over Instagram. I love Instagram. It's my favorite place um, to be on Twitter some. And um, also, I have a Silence Your Inner Critic course. And I, um, if you guys use Girl Boner, I will give that a code so you can get it for a dollar. And it's one of my favorite things because it really helps people. Um, it's an e-course and it really helps people realize where that critic is coming from and address it. So since we're talking about fear right now, that's great. So you guys can have it for Thank a buck. Thank you. That is so bonus. generous. Yeah. And we find that on your website. Yeah, at laurenmariefleming.com. Yay. And I will share links as well in the follow-up great. blog post, which you guys can find on my website. For more information from Dr. Megan Fleming and to get 30% off of her Rekindle Desire program, you can visit her website, but go to this link. It's greatlifegreatsex.com backslash girlboner. That is how you get 30% off. To find show extras, purchasing options for my new book, Embraceable, Empowering Facts and True Stories About Women's Sexuality, and a lot more, visit my website. That's augustmclaughlin.com. And if you're digging Girlboner, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes and consider leaving us a rating and review. Thank you so much for listening, everyone, and have a beautiful Girlboner Embracing Week.